Welcome, Claudia. Thank Thanks you. for joining me on Sunday afternoon. Um, so we've been talking for many years off and on about practice. But the idea of practice and the practice of practice, because we have our various practices, the college has a practice. And so I thought today might be a very good opportunity to talk about practice as, um, as it emerges in two of the greatest thinkers that we study on campus, Montaigne, 16th century Frenchman, and Dogen, the 13th century Japanese philosopher, um, both of whom wrote essays, mm -hmm. right? both of whom had their versions of practice for ordinary life, and, um, uh, and, and both of whom raised many questions mm -hmm. about the relation of practice to ordinary life. And it's not, it's not an idea that we get to talk about a lot or idea that we do talk about in normal life because most people think they don't have pract a practice, you mm -hmm. know, namely some deliberate mm -hmm. set of activities that they do mm -hmm. with some kind of purpose and intensity mm -hmm. and consciousness. And so, uh, but it is a, well, it is a culture that we have in, uh, say, martial arts or in, uh, yoga, spiritual traditions, in Christian traditions, we have the idea mm -hmm. of practice, mm -hmm. right? But, um, mm -hmm. so I wonder if we could just start with, uh, Montaigne and, and, uh, and we both landed on this unusual and less well known essay by Montaigne in book six mm -hmm. called On Practice, yeah. right? Which in French is, uh, exercitation, right? Exercises, mm -hmm. ex exercisation. Would you like to introduce us to it? Yes, thank you for pointing me to it. Um, I, I loved this essay. He starts right away uh, by talking about practice in relationship with our awareness of our mortality. So he starts right away by saying, but in dying, which is the greatest work we have to do, practice can give us no assistance at all. A man may by custom fortify himself against pain, shame, necessity, and such like accidents. But as to death, we can experiment it but once and are all apprentices when we come to it. And, and so I really loved how he just like, he just like landed there, which has to do, I think, with our, with the um, in, inevitable emotions that arise when we reflect upon mm. our, our, the possibility that we would cease to be um, but then I, I thought it was really quite amusing that he then goes on um, for quite a number of pages to talk about this possibility that we might actually be able to practice for dying. And I, I also love how that orients the question against the Western mm -hmm. philosophical tradition, because that Socrates, of course, famously says philosophy is a training for death. So we, so he's, he's immediately, he says you can only do it once, so you can't actually have a trial run. But there's a lot you can do to think about um, relationships to mortality. Um, and I'd like to talk about some of those today. I also thought it was quite lovely that he ends the essay with a return to Socrates, who he calls the, I believe, the greatest sage. He's the only sage, right? He's the only one who actually kind of put his money where his mouth was in terms of being willing to stake it all yeah. um, and face death. Um, I, I got quite a lot out of this. And, and I, I'd also like to talk as we go about, he tells personal stories, but he also works in 
these Latin quotations from various classical Roman mm -hmm. authors. He works in uh, some Dante. So he's, he's doing something with the Western literary tradition that seems to have something to do with um, orienting oneself around temporality and mortality. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the tradition he belongs to. Right. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the, the general arc of this essay because it's, it's fascinating how he starts, he, uh, he starts with the first, in the first paragraph with describing how great it is that we can, as he quotes it, exercise and form our soul by experience, um, to the way we want it to go. Namely, a good way of, one good way of describing what practice might be, you know. But then, as you say, immediately in paragraph two, he jumps straight in and says, um, but for dying, practice cannot help us, right? And and then he has about seven pages where he unpacks an anecdote from his life where mm -hmm. uh, one of his servants mm -hmm. riding a big horse mm -hmm. bowls him and his horse over. He's thrown from his horse. He's thrown from his horse. The horse is knocked down too. The horse is knocked down. So on top of him maybe. And so he said this is the only time he's ever lost consciousness. Mm -hmm. right? And um, mm -hmm. so he then wrestles with that. You know, So we go into quite some detail about that story. Mm -hmm. um, and then he comes back mm -hmm. to practice. Well, and he makes it so personal. He says, um, I spend my time working on myself. And then, he, and then he has a critique of what that, why the Western tradition has been so hesitant to allow self to emerge as a kind of crux mm -hmm. of practice because it's perceived as vanity to focus on self. And so I think he also illustrates something that I hope we can talk about later, which is th this is not metaphysics. This is not self as looked upon from the high, lofty, metaphysical heights mm -hmm. of, of a kind of Kantian or Hege Hege Hegelian kind of perspective. This is, no, this is, my, this is me, and I'm going to have to face my death with equanimity, hopefully. He says, he's, I love how he's like, Hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you can never quite know, um, but it, but he's trying to return us to this process of ruminating on what it means to be mortal, what it means to be given one life to live, what it means for things to matter. I think he does a great job with yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking when he says that? I, I guess I'm thinking about a kind of vanity that maybe the metaphysical tradition is not aware of it of in itself mm -hmm. that if if you if you purport to a kind of um lofty reason and which can somehow sweep away all of our emotional or repetitive responses to things then then maybe there's a kind of vanity in that that you've reduced you've reduced who you are and i i love montaigne he's like i'm I have all of that. I had a lot of emotion when I woke up, when I regained consciousness after that accident. He talks about his wife, mm -hmm. and, and he's kind of invoking kind of this restoration to consciousness. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I, and I think there is, there is, you know, he says, oh, we, we, we've, we've, um, we've turned it into kind of vanity to talk about ourselves, but it's the most important thing we have. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and that leads to me into why I personally practice the martial mm -hmm. arts. You can't get it through daily life, right? Mm -hmm. You can't get it through, um, am I hungry? I need to get something to eat. You can't get it through the sort of utilitarian forms of tending to the needs of the body. You have to seek for something that goes beyond utility. Mm -hmm. um, something that looks at life from a kind of vantage point of it could throw anything at me, mm -hmm. right? It could, it could bring me great illness. It could take in death the ones I love the most, right? And there's, how do you practice for the, the vicissitudes of, of being embodied, of, of being um, who we are? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of practice that most people do, usually without knowing it, in everyday life of, as you say, the, the ordinary things. Mm. Hygiene, mm. practice of hygiene, right? Practice good health practices, good culinary practice, mm. good social practices. Mm. But, but you're suggesting that it's very different from what Montaigne is describing here, namely a kind of practice that attempts to engage mm. the the most important moments of everyday life, the most important moments of life mm -hmm. that we can't mm -hmm. necessarily predict, mm -hmm. right? The ones that um, unsettle you completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and how do we face those moments? Um, we can face them by escaping into distracting thoughts. But, but I think that at the heart of practice is facing those moments with a kind of acceptance, with a kind of fullness of consciousness. And that, I think, maybe bridges the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition. That is it, um, uh, who's, who's the, the Frenchman who talks about how we want to get in our carriage and race off to the country, right? And then we race back to the city. Mm -hmm. Pascal, Pascal, right? It's right. In, the, yeah. um, in the Pensee that we, we want to race around and distract ourselves so that we don't have to feel the full weight I think this notion of practice has something to do with looking straight at it without flinching. And it's, and it does take, I mean, I'm thinking of my martial arts practice. I, I do, as you know, I do the Japanese mm -hmm. uh, martial art of Aikido. I have a, a fifth degree black belt. Right. It's been a long journey. It's 30 years, right? It's Almost, been 30 yeah, years, yeah. a long journey of, of hitting the mat hard in the cold of winter and sweating hard in the heat of summer. And you have to keep asking yourself, why, why would I go back to the dojo? Why would I continue to go back? Mm -hmm. Why would I put myself in the throes of discomfort when I could not? I could mm -hmm. turn on the air conditioning and out order the um, fish tacos. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but we, we begin to undo, I think, the inevitability of utilitarian thinking. We begin to unearth mm -hmm. a more um, raw willingness to contemplate pain and uh -huh. discomfort. So I wonder if before we go further into this, could you describe for the viewers who might not know what exactly Aikido is, how it differs from the others, and what goes on in the dojo? So when you say you go there for the discomfort, what, what do you mean by that? Mm. Yeah. yeah, so we walk into the dojo and 
you you have to bow uh, to the kamiza, to the sacred shrine, uh, mm -hmm. the Japanese notion of the sacred shrine. And you're in your uniform. Not yet. Well, not yet, okay. Not mm -hmm. yet, but there's this kind mm -hmm. of liminal, and I wanted to talk about this today, yes, this please, notion yeah. of liminal spaces. Yes, okay. Right, mm -hmm. you walk across the threshold, mm -hmm. and the cares of the day, all of the thinking that you've done at St. John's College, right, where you've been like teaching Kant, and you've been talking about Aristotle, all of the cares of the day, you have to realize I left those on the shoe rack when I took off my shoes and I crossed into the dojo and I did my bow. And I've entered into, I think what we would call a sacred space, a space that has been carved out of daily life where something else is going to happen. And I think mm. one thing I like about the Japanese martial art of Aikido is that what, what it's up to you to discover what that something else is. So Aikido was, um, it was, it's the most recent of the Japanese martial arts. It was invented in um, Japan after World War II by um, Morihei Ueshiba, who very uh, consciously felt that humanity needed to address its violence problem. And so he came up with this idea that you could design a martial art around the concept of love, around the concepts of I, uh, AI is mm -hmm. the Japanese syllable for a kind of, maybe agape would be a commensurate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in Chinese too, I is love. Love yeah. and then ki, which is the energy, mm -hmm. the energy that flows through us, the energy of the universe. And, and so with Aikido, it's, um, it's pretty unique among the martial arts in that you can practice it at full power without anybody getting uh -huh. hurt. And, and Do is, is Tao, Do or is way. the way. So it's like the, the, the way of loving energy or the way of love and energy. Yeah, yeah. and for me, Do is, Do is just that you go in and practice uh -huh. wondering what the path is. And some days it's like, I hate this. I'm going to quit at the, end of the, at the end of the session. I'm going to go to Sensei and tell him I quit. And some days it's unbelievable recognition that there's um, uh, an interface of consciousness that you don't encounter in daily life. Mm -hmm. So that's when you, you bow, right, at the beginning. So, so the liminal space, yeah. like I always yeah. taught, I, the way I understood it in my practice is that it's, it's similar. You, you bow, mm -hmm. all the preoccupations of daily life, your frustrations, your sadness, your anger drop off your shoulders. Or they should. Or they should. They should. It's what you're trying to do. So you can go in there clean because you're going to practice some mm -hmm. dangerous stuff, mm -hmm. right? And you don't want any of that stuff to fuzz you up or interfere. Right. And right. at the end you bow all of what you've just been practiced mm. of. Yeah, can mm -hmm. I tell you a story actually? Because yes. we do Iaido as well yes. at the dojo, mm. the art of the sword. And I, um, we started up again after the pandemic a year ago. It was in April of 2021. Mm. And I, I have this little lightweight practice sword. It doesn't even have a sharp edge. And I started with that and the very first time I drew it out of the side, out of the scabbard, I, I hurt my elbow. Mm -hmm. And it was like this constant wrestling. Like, am I really going to do this again at this stage in my life? Um, and I finally worked myself up. Um, I have a, a live sword, um, a Japanese blade, very sharp, very heavy. I finally worked myself up. I'll take it to the dojo. Ten minutes. I take the other one too. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, I'm going to cash it in. I traded them out. 
and it, and it, and then 20 minutes, 30 minutes, slowly developing the, the strength to be able to practice because it's very heavy on the right elbow and the right shoulder. Um, but I realized that I was in an antagonistic relationship with this sword. I, I saw it as an adversary. It, it was something I had to wrestle with. And if I could do it for 20 minutes, it was a victory. And I finally realized it's the adversarial that's my enemy. Mm-hmm. So I, I sat down with the sword. I bowed to the sword. And I, I said out loud, I said, I respect you. And I bowed to the sword. And everything changed that day. Mm. And now I take out that sword every Saturday. I take it out. I bow to the sword. I say, I respect you. You are a worthy warrior. Mm-hmm. So you're not entering clenched and embattled and oh, it, yeah, I, self-sabotaging. Yeah, yeah, I saw it as an adversary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then what? So, you're going to, so you go into the dojo and then what happens? What happens in Aikido? Oh, well, who knows? I mean, it's different every day. I mean, some days you're running a tape in your mind from something you're clinging onto from your work, from your personal life, and you never get past that. You're just running the tape the whole time that you're practicing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes some amazing thing happens where you can drop all of that and have an insight or recognize. I mean, we can talk about this later, but just the now. Mm-hmm. What is the now? Mm-hmm. And how does the now work? Uh-huh. But, in, but in the dojo, and on, to, to an observer, it looks as if there's a series of mm-hmm. simulated attacks where mm-hmm. one person attacks and, right. and, and is then thrown right. to the ground or taken into a joint lock right. or something like that. Right. right. There are mm-hmm. the techniques. And then, yeah. and then because Aikido focuses so much on love, we spend a lot of time thinking about the art of ukemi. Mm-hmm. Ukemi being the art of being able to fall to the mat safely without injury. Mm-hmm. So we even so even even receiving the technique in Aikido is a practice. In in some ways, more interesting. More interesting, yeah. Um, the technique is the technique. I mean, obviously, there are technical aspects to it, and we need to think about: Is it you know? Are you trying to raise the chin? Are you trying to cut mm-hmm. across the eyes? What are you trying actually to do with? With the strike or with the with the movement, but in in receiving the technique, it, it's very um, there, you really can't be distracted because you're going to hit the mat and you're probably going to hit it pretty hard. And there's only yeah. kind of a few ways that that could happen without injury. So I I, I think that's, that's nice. what drew me to Aikido was the art of ukemi, the art of okay. taking the fall. And that, Mm. I think, relates to what we said about life. Life is going to throw a lot of attacks at you. Can you take the fall? Yeah. Somebody uh, with whom I trained judo uh, a long time ago told me about ukemi. So if I'm receiving the fall in a test, fall in such a way as to make your friend look really good. Mm, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of people come into the dojo and watch, and at the end of, of, of the watch, they're like, it doesn't look all that hard. And, and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the perfect response. Yeah. <laughs> you just made me feel really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just to go back to Montaigne, now you're helping me see something. So there's a, this, this whole essay is built on a fall, mm. right? And, and it's mm. in a way the whole essay is about ukemi mm. in, in a deep way. Yeah. Um, and I can't help thinking about what you said concerning the Socratic tradition early on, that Socrates is the one who first mm. made the injunction that to philosophize 
is to learn how to die, mm-hmm. or to or to study how to die, or to practice how to die, right? And Montaigne himself has an essay in Book One mm-hmm. on on that very theme to to uh, mm-hmm. to philosophize is to learn how to die, and in that tradition, the the work or the practice is mainly cerebral, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to understand death. Mm-hmm. You're trying to uh, see how your soul is not the same as your body. Mm. You're trying to wean your soul away mm. from the body, from this world of flux, by philosophizing, by thinking through what it might be. So so the practice, mm. at least in, in Plato's Phaedo, and um, and to some extent with Montaigne, you know, it's early on in Montaigne, is to, um, mm. is to face death constantly in your mind, so that it's not alien to you. It's like you're making the sword your friend, mm-hmm. right? In a way. So, so, but but you do it with a, at least with with Socrates and Montaigne and the Stoics for sure. You're making you're befriending it, um, making it your benefactor, mm-hmm. you know, as it were. But here, mm-hmm. there's a kind of turn, you know. So when he says that death is something you can't practice for, mm-hmm. it's as if he says that way of practice, the 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 cer- cerebral thinking, the ordinary thinking that isn't mm-hmm. that that isn't faced with something physical, mm-hmm. right? Is is not really practicing for death because death, when it comes, is going to be uh, unexpected, right. uh, unpredictable, mm-hmm. and physical, right? Right? It's going to be a fall right. in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's. Right, and I, and I think that's kind of why I brought up that as this notion of the essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that? Literally, is like an attempt. An right? attempt, yeah. Right, that this is not metaphysics. This is not retreating into thought constructs. Um, I think that's very important because I'm not convinced that death should come to mind, right? Levinas has that whole essay on whether God should come to mind. No, God should come to heart. And I think death also should come mm. to heart. And, and this kind of response to it, I think, does justice to that turn from, well, let me, let me engage in, in reason, let me um, engage in syllogistic reason, right? Kind of mm-hmm. does this sort of self-consistent reason and, and just allows himself to wander into those places of f- fear, of weakness, of feeling that. The f- he, I love how he describes just like waking up like a broken body, right? When he yeah. comes back after the, after the, um, after the fall of the horse, he's, he wakes up, he comes back to consciousness, but he's a broken body. And he, and he begins to start to process uh, our brokenness. And, and that, that appeals, I think, at a, at a practice level. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he says he can't even, he wouldn't have remembered what happened if it were not for the onlookers. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And we can all yeah. relate to that experience. Yeah. Of like kind of being knocked unconscious and being confused and um, his wife and his the people who witnessed it they kind of tell him yeah what what do you make of that i guess that aspect of being having to be told 
Yeah. What what happened to you? Yeah, because what because what we what we're reading then in this story is not even Montaigne's memory of it. It's 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 a reconstruction, a kind of like a composite memory. Oh, yeah. And, reaching and it, into the collective. Yeah, reaching yeah. into collective, which he then reimagines and writes down. Right. So mm. so there's a funny way in which this fall the the blank in memory, the mm. the loss of consciousness, right, is mm. is is itself a kind of death. Right. For mm. for a moment, there's a there's a blank in my existence, mm. and I need the help of all these people to piece it together. Mm. And you, you know, so so this this just emphasizes what what you said earlier, and that the the metaphysical tendency is really to pretend that there's some spot outside oh. change or so outside experience that that you can stand on, mm -hmm. and and where you don't change and it doesn't change, and yeah. you can look down objectively and everything that's happening, and that it's always there, mm -hmm. and that that's the kind of pretense because we don't we can't in fact find it, you mm -hmm. know, and and so this this mm -hmm. fall from the horse is a uh, um, is really for kind of temporarily the loss of his existence. Um, that giving oneself over to the to the importance of the congregation. I'm thinking now of religious. I'm thinking now not of mm -hmm. Montaigne and not yet of Eastern or Eastern mm -hmm. practices, but of maybe things from the Judeo-Christian tradition or are the Muslims are about to go into Ramadan. Um, this period where you give yourself over to hunger and thirst during the day in order, and then not in order, but then going to feast with the community at night. And, and just having read Genesis in sophomore seminar earlier this year, um, this, this notion that one doesn't know where the meal is going to come from. One has mm. to give oneself over to this kind of faith mm -hmm. that, God will provide, and there will be a meal. Um, but it, but this, this is very foreign, I think, to us at this stage in our kind of utilitarian socioeconomic ethic, where we, we provide food for ourselves and our families, and we think about ourselves as people who, mm -hmm. um, as people who, if we're successful, right, we're always able to to get the food on the table. Um, a lot of religious practice, I think, gives itself over to this idea, no, you, you hurl yourself into the collective and you, you, you trust, you have faith that if you can't do it, someone else will. This is very much at the heart of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah, it's definitely different. Like, yeah. yeah. The East Asian ethic too, I mean, the Confucian mm -hmm. ethics, mm -hmm. you know, where... Uh, every ritual in ordinary life, you know, a handshaking, sitting at the table, mm. having mores of how we oh, yeah. talk, how we eat, mm. uh, how we love, how we rule, mm. how we die, mm. how we celebrate death. You know, all every single step mm. is is ritualized in a way where it's a wholehearted hurling of yourself, as you put it, into the whole social order. Um, and not a withholding, right? Whereas, whereas for us, we tend to think about it as, as being, um, as social mores, as being like a, a softening of interactions between individuals, mm -hmm. you know, a kind of uh, mediation between individuals, but, but not something that has the power to transform yeah. the individual. Yeah, and, and the, tr the, the trust, the trust that the ritual will enact whatever spiritual work is evoked in mm -hmm. grief or in fasting or yeah. in um, 
um, it's kind of Christ, the Christian ethic of kind of radical love of neighbor, um, the trust, right? That if, that we don't have to do it ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. That, that there, there are these um, more collective mechanisms. Yeah, I think the dojo really reflects that. I mean, we call each other, um, if, if someone's of lower rank, you, you call them san, so mm -hmm. I would say krishnan, but you're, well, you're probably senior to me, so I would call you senpai, so I would say krishnan senpai, but if someone's slightly lower, I would just call them san. But those kinds of mechanisms of organizing our collective life relative to these notions of you're an elder, maybe you're an elder, you've been on the path longer than I have, mm -hmm. I have something to learn from you, or you're my junior, I have to really try to embody my responsibility of trying to make sure you see the right things in the practice. Um, you know, those kinds of things I think are, are very much present in the martial arts. This, you know, or, or sitting in the Zazen monastery, right? Where we wouldn't even use our names, mm -hmm. right? We would, we would just kind of move toward a kind of place of um, being just, no, just a place, right? And that, I think, kind of Dogen brings that up that um, I hope we can talk about that that kind of letting letting go of I have to do it for myself. Or, yeah. I'm, I have I have to be strong strong enough. Yeah, yeah. And with, with Montaigne too, you see in this essay where he's, uh, he's bowled over by someone else and by someone, he falls off his horse and then he's put together uh -huh. by other people, right. right? They carry him back. They put him together. They take care of him. They mm. even restore his memory. That's they, right. they give him, they tell him what's happening. You know, so in a way, the, the entire community he, mm. is, mm. is him mm. right now. And, and perhaps all mm. those quotations of Latin authors mm. uh, think it's, mm -hmm. they're him. He's them. He's, yeah, yeah. 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 It's not just, it's not just my, physical community of those that yeah. live with me. It's also this notion that my community is the human tradition yeah. that I have come into and I will depart from. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love how he crosses time, right? He's yes. like, I'm just gonna reach back a thousand years and like yeah. <laughs> connect with yeah. that. Yeah, and then there's, yeah. No, there's no way he can draw a line between what's him and what's everything else. Well, right? and, and yeah. that I think, that brings us to what we do at St. John's. Yeah. We reach across time. Right? We think of these works as, as timeless, in, not in the sense that they are always um, reflective of the utilitarian mores of the day, but in the sense that they're worth reading from this point of, of view of cultivating our humanity. And, and that, I think, is a practice of just taking one of the books and opening it and reading it with a spirit of inquisitiveness or curiosity. Um, but also we come together and sit together for long periods of time mm -hmm. just doing nothing but having a conversation right we haven't we haven't scripted it in advance and so it takes on a kind of improvisational character and why like why are we doing that like mm -hmm. um yeah we have to sit for two hours well at at certain time yeah. we do this at a certain time we have to sit for two hours we have to start with an opening question Mm. Yeah, no, I think St. John's College Seminar, there's a really funny thing about it being two hours, because I think one comes and one gets tired very quickly because it goes late into the night. And one's like, oh, yeah, you could just like knock it. You could knock out that conversation in an hour. We could we could get all that done in an hour. We don't need 
but it has to take two hours. There has to be that moment when everybody's sort of sitting there thinking, oh, I wish we were done, but we have a whole other hour. And then you sort of relax into that space and something magical happens in the second hour. And that's what we're talking about with the martial arts. That's what we're talking about with this notion of essay writing. Like where, where, is, where are you gonna go, right? Like what, what paragraph are you gonna write next or what, what whimsical um, thing are you going to find in the, in the classical tradition that, you, that maybe kind of gives you a mm, mooring point, a foundational point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, you kind of have to, and that's throwing yourself into the collective. Yeah. You know? Like, okay, there's 20 other people in this room. I have to sit here. I have to let it, let them think their thoughts too. I wonder if we could just go back to this question about um, the physical practice, mm -hmm. the importance of the physical, because this is like, radically different from the platonic practice of mm -hmm. thinking, mm -hmm. right? You think, you know, you, you affect the relationship to death by thinking through mm -hmm. it. And what I think we're, mm -hmm. we're saying that Montaigne and Dogen and others and, and the dojo are all suggesting is that there's something very important in the body, feeling this, you know, you actually have to be slammed to the mat, mm -hmm. right? And, and so can, can you say more about that? How, how did that affect you? What, what would be missing if you didn't have this practice, Aikido, in your life? Well, I, I turned to Aikido while I was in graduate school because I felt that I was becoming a brain on a stick. I had actually had thoughts of stepping in front of the bus, mm -hmm. you know, like this, this was very... Um, divided life. We are bodies in motion, mm -hmm. right? That is what we are. Yeah. We move. Um, even if we are not actively mm -hmm. cultivating a life of motion, which I, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't presume to judge, but we are bodies in motion. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, for me, that was very restorative, I guess, just getting to a place of seeing mind and body could actually go together. Aikido is interesting, yeah. right? It gives you a lot to think about. Uh -huh. You're like, hmm, what do we... But at the same time, you have to... Um, the mind alone cannot solve its problems. There uh -huh. has to be... So, so you, you learn how to put those two things together. Being a body in motion is... I mean, I think of Montaigne saying, dying is the greatest work we have to do. Right. Right? That there's... That we're going to arrive at this threshold and it, and how do how could we possibly practice yeah. for that if not to become aware of all of the thresholds that we cross every day as we move through the home out out of the home into the workplace into the um, place of the, the, the stores and the things that will supply our daily needs those are all thresholds mm -hmm. that we have to cross. Um, I, I do think we spend a lot of time maybe trying to distract ourselves from thresholding yeah. as a kind of practice. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think so too. I mean, I find that in myself, I, I tend to be an over-imaginative person. You know, I, I live in my head, in, in my soul a yeah. lot. Yeah, I live in stories, yeah. I live in images. So um, martial arts practice and the practice of sitting mm -hmm. was uh, really important to bring me back to my present, you know, and what was around me. Mm -hmm. Montaigne himself kind of has his version of, of sitting as a, as a metaphor because he keeps saying throughout his essays, mm -hmm. I'm thinking in, on experience, how, um, how we are a whole that is made up of a body of motion, 
of mind, mm -hmm. of emotions, of thoughts. We're not just mm -hmm. one of these that we can abstract from mm -hmm. them, right? Okay. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, so the question is that we don't always, I think you're pointing, we don't always live as if we're this whole, mm -hmm. right? And, and when we don't live mm -hmm. like we're this whole, if we're, if we're just one part of it, mm -hmm. if we're just the physical, if we're just the sensual, if we're just the mm -hmm. sexual, if we're just the mm -hmm. intellectual, we get unhappy. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of practice for me is about undoing residue Mm -hmm. Right, residue builds up. Right, um, residue, like, emotional residue. Um, if you work at St. John's, you get a lot of residue, or you're still thinking about a conversation or um, intellectual residue. Um, just mm, the chatter of the mind, and I, I think for me, practice is very much about breathing through the residue and getting getting. I don't know what you get to. I mean, I, I guess I. I still don't know what you get to, but at least you get to a moment where you realize, oh, like that's just a layer of residue. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like that doesn't yeah. have to be definitive of yeah. self. Um, that's yeah. that's just a hangover of something that happened to me yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it's some kind of threshold. You're saying some kind of threshold that's holding us back, you know, whatever this residue is. Yeah, like we're bouncing off. Yeah, of bouncing off. And yeah. it could be boredom is the most common one, mm. right? Mm. Or the need for distraction, distraction. the need for stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so mm. just, just being forced in a practice mm. to, to sit there and go through with it. You know, being able to sit in a seminar for two hours and listen to the talk for two hours, mm. you know, th it's really important. You might start to lose interest in an hour, but you have to sit through it. Mm. Sitting in meditation you might start to lose interest in about five minutes uh, and, you'll, and you'll come up with all kinds of excuses mm -hmm. like my leg is starting to hurt, my, you know, I need to change positions. But mm -hmm. if you just sit through it, you find that you go past your threshold mm -hmm. in a way that mm -hmm. the practice takes you past the threshold, right? If, mm -hmm. if you stick to the practice. Yeah, and being in a body, it, body's hurt. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? Body's hurt. And if you're going to get older, which... Hopefully we are, you know, you're going to have to look right at a lot of physical discomfort that you can't medicate your way through. Uh, what are you going to do with that? Our sensei, our sensei, our, our Aikido sensei, um, he says young lions, right? Like that they come to the dojo at young. They're like the young lions. They They hurl themselves as if they're launching it all into the conquest but you get older and you learn to practice in a different way um, you learn to practice in a way that acknowledges that you're not a young lion anymore you can't stake it all on any one showdown you have to you're stiff your hips are stiff your knees are stiff but you still want to practice so I think that that notion of aging is is definitely here in Montaigne. He he spends a lot of time in the essays talking about yeah. aging, right? Yeah, like, about um, ten pages in on experience about his kidney stones, <laughs> kidney stones, right? And and so you ask like, what does what do kidney stones have to do with anything? And, and you're saying, well, kidney stones have to do with everything because kidneys they have to do with pain. They have to do with being in a body. Mm -hmm. Now I'm seeing the the initial statement differently. To philosophize is to learn how to die. It's we see that includes learning how to age. Mm -hmm. That includes learning how to be in a body, mm. how to be in time, mm. Um, mm. how to have senses. Yeah, I, I wonder if one of the things we get from that is, um, one of the things that pain teaches us, discomfort teaches us, is our limits. Mm. 
Mm. Right. You know, so the whole young lion mindset mm. is, is that we have no limits. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. same when we read, same in our imagination. In our imagination, we have no limits. Mm -hmm. But there's something very important about running up against something that hurts. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something organic too about the young lions sort of metamorphos metamorphizing into, um, more humble older age maybe that's really organic too maybe there's a way we have to start as young lions and then um, morph into mm -hmm. the humility of illness and mm -hmm. pain um, and and that could get back to the thing about the elders right that you you look what do you see when you look at your elders you see those who are walking the path right no. to show you where the to show you where your future might 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 go um and the japanese martial arts are very cognizant of those who are ahead of you on the path and those who are behind you on the path and you you have obligations in both directions mm -hmm. to the young um and to the old yeah and when you look ahead to the old you see they've suffered right they've they've been cut down to size they've lost people they love mm -hmm. they've been in pain they and are in pain mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah and they have something profound <laughs> to teach you if you only knew what question to ask you know and and i i have a, a friend um from my church she's she's 92 she's about to turn 93 and we have coffee every friday and she's really remarkable in that she can give narrative to her experience mm -hmm. with getting old. She just recently had to surrender her car keys um, because she's had these blackout episodes. And, and she, she's talked a lot with me about kind of really wanting to approach that moment with consciousness, consciousness and mindfulness, that she wants to be graceful about it. She's seen a lot of her age mates resist the moment they had to, to stop driving. Oh, I, you know, they would just, find these sneaky ways around and get the car keys from their daughter or whatever and go off. And, and she's like, no, I really want to be purposeful about this moment of surrender. This was like befriending your sword. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want an adversarial relationship yeah. with this. Yeah. Especially with your own life, right? You mm. don't, yeah. Could we talk briefly about Dogen? Yes. Yeah, so here we have, uh, so we have a 16th century, uh, we've, we've just been talking about 16th century French writer. And... In some ways, now we're talking about a 13th century Japanese writer. He's a writer. Mm. He's, he's about um, as most powerful writer as, and as beautiful a writer as you could imagine. Mm. He wrote essays, mm. sometimes called fascicles, but they're essays. Mm. Right? And, and uh, they might, some of them are personal, mm -hmm. some of them are less personal. Mm -hmm. um, so, 13th century Zen monk mm -hmm. who was the abbot became the abbot of his monastery. He went to China, he studied mm. various languages, he came back to Japan and um, revitalized Zen, mm. right? And at the heart of his practice is sitting mm -hmm. Zazen, mm -hmm. right? Zazen being Zen meditation mm -hmm. here, but he's sitting. Mm -hmm. I wonder how does this, the, the practice of sitting, like we practice sitting in the seminar, you know, so that's, mm -hmm. we sit there too, but the sitting, how does that, yeah. relate to, say, the practice of falling, both, say, in Aikido and in Montaigne. Mm -hmm. well, I think Dogen, for me, Dogen really is able to illustrate 
the vessel of consciousness. And I, he's very clear that he wants to restore the practices of Zen Buddhism to this kind of really mindful presencing of consciousness. And, and no one else can do this, like Dogen can do this, right? He, he can just get you thinking about what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm a thinking vessel. What's going on with that? Um, now, he's different, though, though, because he, um, he definitely recognizes self. He recognizes the discreteness, the uniqueness of being an individual consciousness. It's your work. No one can do it mm-hmm. for you, right? You, you have one consciousness in, in, your, in your care for you to shepherd through life. And what you do with that is, is your responsibility. He's very aware of self. But he doesn't make certain assumptions that I think 16th century French kind of expected Montaigne to make, which is a notion of a kind of soul-body split. So, so Dogen is able to really look at the whole package. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about, right, as I sit in Zazen is my knee hurts, right? Already there, you have this unity. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking, but the narrative that just flashed through my mind has to do with my knee. Mm-hmm. So there must be some kind of um, kind of unity that's available to the consciousness doing its thinking thing and the body. Um, and I, I think Dogen is really delightful that way, that he restores us to a unity. Montaigne is, does it quite a bit. But Montaigne, I think, is maybe forced into certain um, kind of maybe connotations that take their backdrop against a certain type of religious assumptions that you, that yeah. you kind of have to speak of the soul and the body as if they're yeah. two different things. Yeah, and it might be how he talks rather than what he thinks, mm. right? Because, I, but I think you're right. Is yeah. is that is that yeah. this this assumption that the, the framework that he's working on of mm-hmm. soul mm-hmm. and body uh, that I think he has to speak within, right? He can't he if he were a heretic and went mm-hmm. and, yes. and went against it, I mean, in the late sixteenth century, it would be terrible right. for him, right? But but so that but but it's this it's this assumption of soul and body that leads to metaphysics, mm-hmm. really the sense that there's some some mm-hmm. timeless spot that the soul belongs to where it can spectate mm-hmm. over everything bodily, mm-hmm. but um, but in a way, I don't think Montaigne really believes that. I think he really mm-hmm. believes that we're we're, we're in there mm-hmm. entirely, and like Dogen is in there entirely there's no there's no outside spot that you can see right the mind is watching but the mind is always changing mm-hmm. the mind is influenced by the body the mind is not something separate from the body yeah yeah, yeah so it's there's a kind of i think maybe this is a version of ukemi too mm-hmm. is a receptivity mm-hmm. to not being separate yeah, what are you yeah. gonna what are you gonna do with the consciousness that's been entrusted to you <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um and he yeah, and I like how Dogen can both, he starts this little volume, the heart of Dogen's Shobogenzo volume that, that we have. He starts it with the physical practice of taking your seat on the cushion, of adopting the lotus position, um, orienting your, um, your hands toward the body center, the, um, mm-hmm. toward the kind of high abdomen. He's very visceral about like 
well, yeah, you're going to put your butt on a cushion and you're going to sit up straight and you're going to fold your hands in a certain way. And um, but then he slowly, as as the as the essays go forward, he slowly begins to open up these questions of time is passing, mm-hmm. right? Time is passing. This is a deep metaphysical problem that everybody worries about, right? Aristotle, yeah, everybody worries about time. Uh, Heidegger, <laughs> you know, and he's like, time is passing. And, and he comes up with this really unique um, idea, I think, that you could you could ride the wave of time, right? So, so this notion that you have brought up several times that you could adopt this kind of God's eye view in which you could lock the world down that is a kind of conceit of the metaphysical tradition. I think Dogen kind of manages to accomplish, the, I think one aspect of the God's eye view that never kind of gets knocked down in the West until Nietzsche. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Until Nietzsche. Yeah. Is this idea that you could somehow take these little timeouts from time. Yeah. Right. right. And you could mm-hmm. do your thinking in, in a little timeout and then come back and yeah. be like, this is what I came up with, you know. Um, and yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, Dogen has this quality where he's like, you, you don't get timeouts. Um, even the thinking you do where you're like, let me walk off into my room and, and see what I come up with. I'll come back and tell you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. He's like, even that is is just such a illusion yeah and it, and it's there, there's but dogen and montaigne both have this effect of a reset right when you are returning you to sanity in some ways is that you don't mm. you're now receptive to what is you're in your life you you get to see what's in front of you you get to see what's in you mm. and you start from there not not you know so you start from what's actually there mm. not not what is not some fictional point of view that is uh, that you don't really have yeah it's right. like what we were saying about the thresholds yeah um you could be walking out to your car after work when some terrible accident occurs. You know, and, and I think we that's part of practice is yeah. that walking out to your car is just is just as critical a moment in your human being as whatever important task you just yeah. accomplished in your in your work life or you don't get timeouts. That's I think that's the message I get from mm-hmm. Dogen is you don't get timeouts because death or catastrophe could come for you at any moment. Are you looking at it? Are you are you able to face it? Right, right. So you get you get one timeout. Well, but that's the one you don't want. Right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's the, the greatest one. work yeah. you have to do. Yes, right. right yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so, yeah, that's right. So I wonder if just uh, as our time is coming to a close, I wonder if we could pull back and just think about very briefly whether you think that in a liberal education, in an education that's built on books and thinking and talk, mm-hmm. whether there is serious need for mm-hmm. a practice or whether there's something lacking about education if there isn't the, the aspect of practice. I think in my personal life, it's absolutely been the only thing that saved me. Um, and I think the reason I the reason there is that, again, this notion of residue. Um, if if you live strictly in the intellectual world, a lot of personal, uh, there's a lot of unfinished business, right? There's thoughts that are left unthought. There are people who you didn't fully understand. There are people maybe that you disagreed with but could never fully reconcile. 
So there's all this unfinished business from a from an intellectual point of view. Mm -hmm. Anxieties, guilt, irritations. Anxieties, guilt, um, trying to achieve a kind of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all of that, it it builds up a lot of residue. And I do think that practice centers around breathing. Mm -hmm. So when I go to the dojo on Saturdays, after a week up here, I'm like buzzing with unfinished business. It takes me the whole morning to be like, breathe in, breathe out. That was one. Breathe in, breathe out. That was two. And it's so restorative. It's, it's like, okay, I can, I can clean the, I can clear the, the slate ready for another week. Um, and I do think, you know, a liberal, you say liberal arts, liberal is supposed to be what frees us, right? It's liberating. Mm-hmm. What is it freeing us from? If not, well, we, we say in this liberal arts community, the unexamined life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, we want to examine our preconceptions. I have prejudices. I want to examine those. I want to find out whether they are grounded in real, real reality or whether they're just fluff that I inherited from without, you know, thoughtlessly inherited. But also liberating ourselves should be from the way we get trapped in our own trains of thought. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm on this train. I got on the A train, right? I, like I'm going, <laughs> I'm right. going down this this train railway, and no, I want to be able to get off the A train. I want to be able to say that's the A train. But thinking itself sets up patterns that we need to liberate ourselves from. Right, because if we're living if we're living in thought patterns, then we can't see clearly. We're not right. living yeah. in our mind body yeah. unity. We're yeah. not living in that my child has a need right in front of me or. Um, or living in the full experience of our kidney stones, or whatever. right, or being thrown from a horse, or being thrown right, from a horse. being where, where the horse itself is thrown. You know, something so vigorous that mm. it jolts us. Yeah. yeah, and I think what you said too about being able to see the ways that we are uh, dependent upon the collective. Um, I'm not so sure that thinking liberally always takes us down that path. Mm. Sometimes I think it can give us the illusion that we're mm. we're on our way toward the right answer. Yeah. And that that might be the closest thing to practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You gave me a lot to talk about, oh my to gosh. think about anyway, and so, so it's a nice place to to end. Yeah. Thank you. It. Yeah. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and Awarehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, Go to sjc.edu.